Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. We've just come out of a Naked Truth series where things were getting hot under the collar. People were blocking their ears, running out of the auditorium, taking their kids, saying, you didn't warn me. So, so that was uh, the Naked Truth we're in a new series now, super excited about it, uh, the book of Galatians. We're going to do a deep dive into the book of Galatians. At its core, the book of Galatians is about the gospel, right? It's about what the good news is. Um, so I'm going to refer to the gospel as the OG, not the original gangster, but the original gospel, right? So whenever I mention that, we're reclaiming that word, we're sanctifying that word. And so whenever I say OG, you must remember I'm talking about the original gospel. I'm not talking about the original gangster, right? Uh, anybody in the auditorium know that they, who's been, uh, this is a bit of a tough one. Anybody know who, who's been a Christian for 12 years? Anybody been a Christian for 12 years? Ah, one hand. Okay, 12, 12 years, really? Uh, more than. I just want like 12 years. Who's like tw celebrating 12 years? I see a couple of hands. So the people that are raising your hands, you've been a Christian the same amount of time as Paul was a Christian before he went to the, to the church of Galatia. And so he, the church of Galatia or the churches of Galatia are in modern day Turkey. And after 12 years of being a Christian, Paul goes to that place and he establishes a number of churches. And, uh, and then once he's established those churches for two or three years, he comes back to whatever other missions he's doing. And so he's writing a letter to those churches. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, Tiam and Natasha go to East London. They plant one church. They plant two churches. They plant a couple of churches in the Eastern Cape, right? And they do amazing things. And they take people through Victory Weekend, Purple Book. They do all the kind of things that, you know, all the processes we do. The churches are doing really well. So Tiam and Natasha feel they need to come back to Joburg to retire. I don't know why you would want to come to Joburg to retire. But they come back to Joburg. And while they're hanging here in Joburg, news filters up that the churches that they had planted are now, you know, they're no longer doing the things that they had taught them to do. And Tiam and Natasha are like frustrated with this. Plus they've got things here, they can't just fly back there. So what they do is they write an email saying like, how can you? Like after all this work, you, you're now going back on it. So that's what Paul is in initially doing. Is that like, after I planted these churches, after I was like your best friend, you're now going back on this. So over the next couple of weeks when we're going into Galatia, it's Paul writing to the Galatian churches, uh, telling them like, uh, you've moved away from what I've called you to do. And so we're going to pick it off up today by talking about the original gospel. And what is at stake with the original gospel? Uh, there's a story about Elisha McCoy, born in 1844. And that's a long, long, long time ago for some of us. It was the 2nd of May. He was born in Canada. What's important about this is that his parents escaped slavery in the U.S. and made their way to Canada. And so he was born free. And within the first couple of years of his life, his parents realized this is a talented young man. Elisha knows maths. He knows science. And so they sent him to the U.K., to get an, for education. And in the UK, he became, um, uh, he studied as an engineer and became an engineer. And once he got his degree and whatever else engineers do, he came back to the US to find work. But 
being an African-American uh, to get work in 1840s or the 1800s as an engineer is not quite the thing they had planned for engineers. So he couldn't become an engineer, started working on the railway. In the 1800s, the railway was the lifeline for the American economy. If you read anything about the American economy, uh, families that have made wealth made it in the railways. The railways was the economy of the time. And so Elisha was working on the railways, and his job was an oilman. So these steam trains that were pulling all these goods would have to stop every hour or so to get their wheels oiled so that they could have lubrication to move on. And so this was time-consuming. And Elisha, when he looked at this, his engineering mind kicked in, and he invented an oiler for the locomotives that would oil the wheels automatically so the trains wouldn't have to stop and fundamentally changed the economy of the United States. But with all good inventions, somebody else looks at it and says, ah, you know, we can make, a, you know, we can, we can make our own. And so some people started copying Elisha's oiler, but his oiler was the real thing. And so when people started asking for Elisha's oiler, they would say, give us the real McCoy. Because his surname is McCoy. So they said, that's where the word real McCoy comes from, right? And so, ha, ah, look, you came to church. You learned something new, hey? So tomorrow, you'll be sitting in the boardroom meeting there, and somebody says, we wanted the real McCoy. You'll know exactly what they're talking about, right? Don't we all want the real McCoy in our lives? You know, you buy a pair of sneakers. You hope they're the real thing. Uh, I do some work with a youth program at Gibbs, and I was speaking to this young boy. He, he's got his own business. He's, you know, he's hustling, grade 11, makes a couple of thousand every month. I say, what do you do? He says, I sell sneakers. I say, what kind of sneakers? He says, uh, dodgy sneakers. I'm like, what do you mean dodgy sneakers? So I said, how do you know? Like, how do you know if this is the real McCoy? He says, it's the stitching. Once you know the stitching, you know it's the real thing. And so like, if I don't know what it is, I'll buy the fake one, right? And so for our shoes, we want the real McCoy, right? Uh, we really do want the real McCoy when it comes to money. If you, you can get counterfeit money, uh, you can pay with it, but if, if you get caught, you can get into trouble with it, right? And there's a whole bunch of things we want the real McCoy, right? And so why would we want anything different with the gospel? Why wouldn't we want the real gospel rather than a fake gospel, right? And so Paul is writing about that fake gospel. And the interesting thing about the evil one is if he brought you something that was fundamentally different to the truth, we would reject it immediately. But if you brought something that looked really close to the truth, we could accept it, right? And so that's why it's really important for us to understand what is the OG. So we're reading from Galatians 1, 6 to 10. And it goes, I am amazed that you are so quickly turned away from him who called you by grace of Jesus and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but that there are some who are troubling you and who want to distort the gospel of Jesus, uh, gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven were to preach your, you, to, to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse on him. As we've said before, now I'm saying again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, a curse on him. For am I trying to persuade people or God, or am I striving to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of God. And so we're going to dive into this today, and we're going to unpack three things about the original OG. 
One is the back-to-front gospel. What is the original gospel, the real McCoy? And, oh, Lord, I'm frightened, but I also said amen, is is our response to the gospel, right? And how do we respond to this gospel that we're engaging with? And so the back-to-front gospel. Now, I wore this jacket once uh, in Belinda's home, and she said it's a nice jacket. I think it's a nice jacket, too. But it's getting very hot here, and the air con is still waiting to kick in. Sorry, Anne. Now, this, this jacket right way round is all right, but if I were to turn it inside out, a bit of theatrics with a handheld mic today, um, hard work doing the inside out, right? So if it was a, this jacket was back to front, it's the same jacket, right? It's exactly the same jacket, but its functionality is fundamentally shifted, if I wore it now, I'd be a laughing stock. People will point out it's the wrong jacket. It doesn't have the pockets in the right place. It's just not the right kind of thing. And this is what happened to the Church of Galatia. They were presented with a gospel that was backwards. They were presented with something that wasn't true. And so Paul starts writing saying, I'm amazed that you turned away so quickly. Now, this amazement isn't like when Mzamu does an amazing job at home and Navila says, Mzamu, I'm so amazed. Like, that's amazing. That's not the kind of amazement, right? This is the kind of amazement that Navila would say, I'm amazed that you don't remember how to do this. Like, it's the words that Paul would use, for example. I know I'm jumped the gun, but let me carry on. He, he was saying, like, I'm bewildered. I'm baffled. I'm perplexed. I'm puzzled. What kind of planet are you coming from? Where, like, why would you change? The gospel, and it's the emphasis is on so soon, right? So it tells me that we're all fallible to change. We're all fallible to fall. But Paul was surprised that it was so soon that they would turn, right? And so he's really baffled by this. And the other thing is that they turn in a way from the gospel. And and it's not not that they turn in a way from just anything. When they turn away from the gospel, they turn in a way from the person, of Jesus. They're turning away from the work of the cross. They're turning away from the principles of peace, of, of, yeah, of peace, of freedom. And when they're turning away from that, they're turning towards the law that strangles, that entraps, that makes it difficult to follow them, right? And so this turning away really perplexed him. And so Tim Keller puts it like this. He says that the gospel is good news, not good advice. And when he talks about it like this, he says, news is something that has happened. Advice means something we need to do, right? So if we think about the gospel, if the gospel is good news, it means that something has happened in order for me and you to be saved. There's nothing we can do about it. But if the gospel is, is good advice, that means I need to do something in order to get saved. Can you see the nuances in that shift of language? And that's how the gospel begins to be turned inside out. And so what they were saying is, we can either do good things because we received a gift from God and the grace of God and the work on the cross, or we do good things to get grace. Which one is it? You can't have it both ways, right? And so today we feed hungry, we do good things, not to to do good works to get into heaven, but as a result of the cross, not the other way around. So we need to be very aware of that, right? And so Paul is saying, how soon you've turned away. There are some that are troubling you. The question is, who is troubling them? It's Jewish Christians. 
uh, Christians that have become Jew, uh, Jews that have become Christians, right? And they, their expression of their Christianism is through their cultural nuance of being a Jew. And so they adhere to all the Jewish customs and celebrations, just that, that they're Christians now. And so what they're doing is they're coming to the church of Galatia, and they're saying to Galatian Christians that if you want to be true Christians, you have to follow our culture as well. You have to do all the things we're going to do. And in fact, if you do it that way, you become a better Christian. And so that is the, the, the interplay in terms of what's happening in the church of Galatia. So the question I have, if it was Jewish Christians that were sort of saying this is how you should be Christians, what are the things that are telling us today? Who are our people saying this is how we should express our culture today? And I think it's our cultural influences around how we show up and where we're going. In many ways, we, we wear our culture uh, like this, right? Got loud music playing. It's a culture in our head. And that's all we can really hear is the culture of the day. And it drowns out what, what the OG is, what the original gospel is. And so when, when, when I'm listening to a really nice song and somebody speaks to me, I have to go, huh, what? And then I get upset because they've interrupted <laughs> what's happening over here. And in some ways, this is what happens when, when God interrupts us. We go, huh, right? And what happens is, is that the volume of modern culture is so loud that we don't hear what's really happening around us. And the gospel offends us in three ways. Um, one, it offends our pride. Why does it offend our pride? Because it tells us we're in need of a savior and that we cannot save ourselves. So it gives us, we have no credit for changing our lives. Nobody comes and says to you, good job for doing what you did, because it's nothing you did. It's everything he did. And so the gospel offends our pride. The gospel offends our wisdom. I have somebody that I follow or follows me or I don't know what you call an online thing that happens with people. Like, I don't, like if I bumped into this person in the mall, I would never know who they are. They wouldn't know who I am. But we're friends on Facebook. They're an atheist. And when they talk about Christianity... They're like, what is wrong with you Christians? Like, if God is so powerful, all-knowing, why on earth would he choose an obscure nation like Israel to demonstrate who he is? Like in a nobody place, why wouldn't he choose a stronger nation, a more influential nation of the time? Like, if you think about it, Israel is such a small little country in the middle of nowhere, right? Why would God choose that? And why would God choose Jesus as the Savior of the world? It makes no sense. And so the gospel offends our wisdom. The gospel also offends our knowledge. When I look around this auditorium, both in this service, the last service that was happening, and the hub, my goodness, we have smart people in our congregation. We have like PhDs. You have no idea who you're sitting next to your house. Look at the person next to you. They are smart. They're really, really, really smart. They are professors. PhDs, they're doing incredible things. The other day, I bumped into somebody in our congregation that's, that's doing some incredible work around turning urine into fertilizer, and they're doing their PhD around. I go, what on earth does that even mean, right? So people are smart, and all you smart people believe in a stupid thing like the gospel, right? You believe that somebody died and rose again. There's no scientific evidence that that is even true or possible, but yet we believe it. And so the gospel offends our knowledge, offends who we are and where we're going. And so I think there are three things that are influencing us today around our culture and particularly the gospel. 
The one is that this is a personal gospel, a personal relationship gospel, right? And so what happens around this is that everything about my relationship with God revolves around me and how it impacts me. And so you come into the doors today, you're sitting there and saying, how is this sermon going to help me be a better person? How is this sermon going to help me have a better quiet time? It's all about me. When I go on mission, it's not about the mission field. It's about how this is going to benefit me. When I go on victory weekend, it's not about how this benefits society. It's about me. And so it's this personal relationship kind of vibe that we have. It all revolves around me. And yes, your relationship with God is between you and Him. But it's expressed through community. You cannot do it alone. You have to be with a bunch of people as you engage around this. And so as I was preparing for this, I came across a poem that I meant many years ago that reminds me of this personal gospel. And I'm going to refer to this poem throughout our time together this morning. It's by Adrian Plass. And, and so somebody's having a conversation with the Lord. And, and so they start off by saying, Tell me, what will I suffer in this world of shame and sin? The Lord says, your body may be killed and left in rotten stink. Do you want to follow me? I said, amen. I think, I think, amen, amen, I think. I think I say, amen. I'm not completely sure. Could we run through that again? You said my body may be killed to let it be left in rotten stink? Well, I've got it. That sounds terrific, Lord. I'll say amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. I mean, I prefer really to die in my bed. He said, yes who could put up with sneer, scorn, and spit. Do you want to follow me? I said, amen, a bit. A bit, amen, amen, a bit. A bit, I say, amen. I'm not entirely sure, Lord. Could we run through that again? You said I might put up with sneer, scorn, and spit. Well, I've made my mind up. I'll say amen, a bit. I sat back and thought for a while, then tried a different ploy. I said, Lord, the good book says that Christians live by joy. He said, yes. You need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Do you want to follow me? I said, amen, tomorrow, Lord. That's when I'll say amen. Tomorrow, Lord, that's when I'll say amen. Did I get it clear? Can I run through it one more time? You said, I need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Well, I've got it straight. I'll say amen tomorrow. And that's when the gospel is completely surrounded about who I am and where I'm going. The next one is a personal preference gospel. And when we think about a personal preference gospel, it's a gospel that's shaped around secularism. It's a gospel that picks and chooses to which parts of it I agree and which parts I don't. You know, we live in a society where I can choose which part of the gospel. In fact, we've had people tear out certain pages of the Bible saying, no longer relevant for me, right? It's a gospel that is tailor-made to my wants and my desires and my needs. It's a gospel that lowers the bar on morality when it comes to sins that I struggle with. And so if I struggle with this one, Lord, there's lots of grace here. But if you're struggling with, ah, maybe not so much grace for you in that kind of area, right? It's a gospel that holds self, uh, your self-expectations low because it's all about the grace of God. Grace abounds so that I may sin, right? It's the kind of gospel that is a personal preference gospel. It's a gospel that has an algorithm that has all the wonderful kind of preachers that you like that speak to the things that make you feel comfortable. The mo yeah, I see somebody being touched on their studio this morning, right? And, and those pastors that say things that are uncomfortable for you, block them, you cancel them out. You don't need to hear from them, right? It's a gospel that says that if you're a good person, you can get saved, right? It says if you do good things, how can God, a gracious God, 
send other people that are not doing good things, right? Because then I have to say, what happens to the bad people like me? How do I get to heaven if only good people go to heaven, right? It's a gospel that cheapens the work of the cross because grace, because of the grace that Jesus offers us. It's a gospel that turns a blind eye because of grace upon grace upon grace because it doesn't call us to a place of holiness. It doesn't say that there's a higher calling that we need to go to. It's this pious gospel that we've encountered. And the third one is that it's a pious gospel. And a pious gospel is an if-you gospel. Not an if-you gospel, just in case you heard me wrong. An if-you gospel, right? And this gospel says, if you work on yourself, you'll be saved. If you're really, really sorry, you'll be saved. If you look like us, you can come along the ride with us. If you do this, if you do that, it's an if-you gospel, right? This says you've got to do a whole bunch of things. It's a performance-based gospel. And so you sit here and you check how many times I've had quiet time. How many times did I come to church? How many hours did I pray? And we're working really, really hard to get the favor of God. It's a gospel that says, yes, there is power in the cross, but there's also importance for me to work really hard to make sure that God is on my side, right? It's a gospel that's founded in institutionalized religion, particularly within the church. It's a gospel that said that Jesus died for all our sins, but there are levels to those sins. And there are certain things that he forgives and certain things that we have to work on um, that sets us apart from the rest. Going back to that uh, poem I was reading, God says to the person having this conversation with God, he says, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. The cost is you, not half of you, every bit of you. Do you want to follow me? I said, amen, I quit. I'm very sorry, Lord. I don't think religion is the courageous thing to do. And so what we have done is we have shaped the gospel into our image and into our own likeness. We're saying the gospel needs to fit my lifestyle. The gospel needs to fit my values. The gospel has, and it's supposed to be the other way around, where we are shaped and our image is going closer to what the gospel is. Now, I could say, go home this afternoon. Spend some time reflecting on that. But you know what? Let's do that now. Let's take a moment to think about your own life and where you've taken the gospel and said it has to fit my preferences. It has to fit my circumstances. I want to give us a moment now, 30 seconds, a minute, if you're at home, online, I hope you're in a quiet place. But just take a moment to say, Lord, Where have I allowed the gospel to fit into my image and my likeness? Lord, won't you forgive us where we've tried to force your gospel into our lifestyles? Lord, won't you forgive us where we've lowered the standard of holiness so that it fits our purpose? Won't you make our hearts pliable, Lord, this morning so that it fits the mold of your gospel? 
that we become your likeness, Lord Father God. And that whatever area of our lives that we're doing this, won't you challenge us this morning so that we may be able to step into the original gospel, the original plan of what you have prepared for us. Amen. Amen. And so if that is the gospel inside out, what is the original gospel? What is the real McCoy? What does it look like? And so Paul offers us a unique look at the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. It says, For I've passed on to you as most important that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day according to Scripture. That is the gospel in of itself. That's everything that the gospel is. And so we're going to unpack this. What is the original gospel? The original gospel is that Christ died. Now, this is really interesting for me, is because we use this often. We'll say Jesus died, right? And then we move right on. But I want us to pause for a moment. It's been a while since I've reenacted, reheard Christ dying on the cross. Now, the, 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 the Romans never invented the crucifixion, but they did perfect it. Right? And so when we think about the crucifixion, let's think about what Jesus went through so that our sins could be forgiven. Because often we just say it and we don't realize what he went through. First of all, he was beaten. And then a crown of thorns was placed on his head and pierced his skin and he was bleeding. He was also lashed 39 times with a, with a whip that has bones and metal shards on it that would come onto the skin and as they would rip it off, it would rip pieces of his skin off. And so by the time 39 lashes, Jesus was bleeding profusely. Then they would put a cloak on him. You know what happens when you're bleeding and you put a cloak on, it starts to clot and so it sticks to his body. Then he carries that cross from wherever he was all the way up to where he was going to be crucified. And we have these very sanitized pictures of Jesus on the cross, clothed. He's stripped down naked. Those clothes that were now formed on the clots are now ripped off. And so that bleeding starts all over again. He's put on the cross, two nails through his wrists. Just imagine a nail going through your wrist. The type of pain that will shoot right through your body. Through his heels, not his heels. I don't know what, Jan, I don't know what bone this is, but over there, right? In over there, and he's on the ground. That's painful enough. But I want you to imagine the pain that must happen when the cross goes from its horizontal piece to its vertical piece, right? And goes into the ground, and the pain that must come on your body as you shunt it into the ground like that. And then as he's hanging over there, it's not comfortable because in order to breathe, you have to lift your body up to take a breath. So every breath he takes, he lifts himself up. But as he's lifting himself up, what is happening? He's reopening the scars on his back. And so splinters are going in. Um, not much has been told about insects that would climb into Jesus as he's on the cross. Flies, insects climbing into his wounds. Can you see how horrific this is? People on the cross would die from a number of reasons. Um, exhaustion. Blood uh, loss. He could have died from a number of things. And if, and if by the time that you were supposed to die, you weren't dead, they would break your legs so that you wouldn't be able to lift yourself up and breathe. Jesus never got to that point. He died before they could break his legs, which is interesting because it's for fulfillment of prophecy that his legs wouldn't be broken, bones wouldn't be broken in his body. Jesus died on the cross. An excruciating pain. An excruciating death. If you go to the English dictionary and you look up the word excruciating, the meaning is out of the cross. 
And so when we say that Jesus died on the cross, sometimes we forget the pain that he went through so that we can say those words so easily. And so he died on the cross for what? For our sins. And so what does it mean that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? How does his death do anything for my sins, right? And there have been many noble men and women that have died for causes. What makes Jesus' death significant for us? One is that because he was blameless, he took on our sin. And that when he took on our sin, God couldn't look at him anymore. Couldn't look at his son because he took on that, that sin. Took our sin so that, so that we can have the incredible worship we had this morning. Because without the work of the cross, we would not be able to enter into the presence of God. And so when Jesus died, the curtain is torn, which gives us permission to walk into the, the presence of God. And so this week I was wrestling with this. I was like, Lord, okay, great. He had to die for our sins. But aren't you the maker of heaven and earth? Aren't you like the, the biggest God of all? Couldn't you just do like that computer, delete, what's it, delete, uh, control, delete, de you know? Delete that part of what you said. Like why wouldn't, why couldn't you just like, I didn't mean like people had to die for their sin, right? Like why couldn't you just do that? And surely you said it this morning. Amazing. God is a person of his word. In Titus 1-2, he says, God cannot lie. He keeps his word, right? Because God spoke the universe into existence, if God goes against his word, the very universe that we are living in will implode because the whole universe is held together by his word. And so if he said, I, I want to change my mind about that, the universe would implode, right? But also, it allows me and you to be confident that when Jesus said it, he would do it, regardless of what the consequences of that are. And so because he died for our sin, because he didn't do the delete, alt, whatever thing that, that is, we can rely on his word today. And so he died for our sin to fulfill his word. He was buried. This is something we don't speak about often when we think about the gospel. And why don't we speak about the gospel? Why, why is it important that Paul talks about his burial? And uh, there's a real whole sermon on the burial itself and the people involved with his burial. But one, it's proof that Jesus really died. Right? If he didn't get buried, you know, we're like, ah, not sure, maybe. Like once you're in the burial, you're dead for sure, right? And so it's in John 19 that, that says Jesus died, he was buried. The second one is that he was buried to fulfill Scripture. Scripture declared that he would be buried and how he would be buried and, and what kind of circumstances were involved. And when he does that, he fulfills Scripture by doing that. And I love this quote. It says, to conquer the grave, he had to go down into it. Jesus not only, so Jesus did not only have to die, but he had to stay dead over a prolonged period of time to, in order to, to fulfill that. And so when we celebrate Easter... We come to church on Sunday and we commemorate the loss and death of Jesus. Sunday we come to church and we celebrate, right? But something happened on that Saturday. Can you imagine his disciples? The dismay, the confusion. Like why that whole Saturday? As I was preparing for this this week, I think that many of us in our walk with God are Saturday Christians at the moment. We just don't feel God is around. I want to tell you Sunday is coming. The, the resurrection is coming and it might feel like you're in the tomb, like nothing is happening for you. Sunday is coming. Something amazing will happen. But sometimes we have to go through that Saturday. Sometimes we have to go through that loneliness and that quietness. 
to overcome that darkness. And so maybe that's why we need to talk about the burial, that there was something in it. But he rose again, right? And that is such a powerful thing. It's essential for our gospel message, right? Can you imagine? Jesus died for our sin, and then he died. And then that was it. That was it, finished. No more. Like, what would we be singing today? We would be no different to many of the other world religions that had saviors, that had prophets. But ours is the only one that raises again, right? And so he raises again. Now, what does Jesus raising do for you and I? One, it shows God's power over life and death, that he is ultimately in charge of that thing. It confirms who Jesus was. Throughout Scripture, it says he would rise, and so when he rose, it confirms that. It's fulfilling prophecy that he would rise. And it's, um, it's the reason that you and I can walk in victory today. Because if it wasn't for the cross and him raising from the dead, we wouldn't be able to say with confidence those words that Shola told us to say. We wouldn't be able to walk in that victory that we have. Now, at the end of any big war, normally there's a, there's a thing that happens with the armies around there. And I, I remember somebody sharing the story about World War II when the Japanese finally surrendered to the U.S. on an aircraft carrier. All the American generals on one side all the Japanese generals on the other side, the admiral of the American Navy standing on his aircraft carrier, the Japanese general or big shot is over there, the American, and I'm not hyping any war kind of stuff, it's just an illustration. So American general admiral goes to the Japanese guy, pulls his rank off and throws it to the floor, pulls all his medals and throws it to the floor, takes his sword that talks about authority, throws it across the aircraft carrier in front of his generals and his, his followers, signifying that he no longer has authority, signifying that he's now submissive to the victor. When Jesus dies on the cross, he goes up to Satan and takes all his rank and throws it on the floor, takes all his weapons and throws it in front of everybody, heaven and earth, and knows that the evil one has no power over us any longer. He has no authority in our lives. And so he is shamed in front of everybody because Jesus rose. Such a powerful thing. So we walk in victory because Jesus rose. Now, why did they say three days? Like, why does Paul talk about three days? In the Apostle Creed, we talk about three days. Like, what's the story with three days? If I was making this movie, Jesus would have come off the cross one minute after he died. Right on the cross there, kick the Roman soldier, you know, do his thing, angels will come down, music will be playing. It'd be like victorious. I wouldn't come out to two nobody women, like three days later, quietly, so don't tell anybody. That's not making a good movie. Like, where was Marvel when God was putting all of this together, right? Like, why three days? Like, what's the story about three days? One is that within the Jewish belief, it's the idea that if somebody died, your spirit hung around for three days, hmm? just in case I can jump back into this body. I don't know. And so three days signified that he was dead, dead as dead, like a doornail dead, right? Secondly, it was fulfilling prophecies that he would be dead for three days. And because Jesus said so in Matthew 16 and 17 and 20, that he would be dead for three days. And I think that's a good enough reason for me, right? Aside from those three reasons, Scripture isn't very open to why three days. There is, in my reading through these times, saying that there's a pattern 
of three days things in the Bible around Jonah being the whale's belly, Hosea. There's a couple of other three days. I was a little bit tentative to go down that route because of all the smart people uh, in the room. <laughs> and finally, because it's according to Scripture, right? I was speaking to somebody on Friday, and while I was speaking to them on Friday, we were talking about the importance of planning. Like I was saying, like, we're planning for the future, something going to happen. And they said, right, but just trust, everything will work out. I'm like, you have more faith than me, right? And so sometimes we believe that what will happen, what will happen, right? The universe will take care of itself. And for me, this, when it says Scripture, according to Scripture, this wasn't a mistake. This just didn't happen in Jer. This isn't something that just like automatically, oh yes, this is a good idea, let's raise him, right? It tells me that it's part of a plan. It's orchestrated. It was designed. If you go to the book of Genesis, it's there about the rising and what Jesus would do, the forecoming of Jesus, right in Genesis. And so when it says according to Scripture, it says that this is the real thing. It's going to happen. And so this is the gospel, the original gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to Scripture, right? And so let's go back to that poem, person having a conversation with God and God speaking back to this person and says, Are you courageous enough and see the need and, and courageous enough to go? Are you courageous enough to care for those who no one wants to know? Are you courageous to say the things that people hate to hear, to battle through Gethsemane in loneliness and fear? And are you, and to battle through Gethsemane in loneliness and fear? And listen, are you courageous enough to stand it at the end, at the moment of betrayal by kisses of a friend? Are you courageous enough to hold your tongue and courageous enough to cry? When the nails break your body, are you courageous enough to die? Are you courageous enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown? Are you courageous enough to love the world, to turn it upside down? Are you courageous enough to follow me? I ask you yet again. Oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. amen. Right? And so there is a response that we have when we come to God. There is a response to all of this. And that is response is that you and I need to say amen. And, strive, and so Paul says, am I striving to please people? Are you striving to please people? We have been conditioned from the beginning of our lives to please people. Think about how we bring our kids up. When they misbehave, what do we do? They do everything to please us. We teach them from young. I'm pleasing you right now. I'm performing, hoping I get some good reviews after this, right? <laughs> Am I offending people? Did I say the right thing over there? And so we're all performing. Some of us um, think that we have to perform to be in this place. And so church is tiring because the moment you walk in there, you start pretending and start performing so that people can feel like you belong in this place, right? And so we're in this performance culture and pleasing culture. And when we encounter the gospel, it says you are worthy and you no longer need to perform because of the work of the cross, so I want to go through that poem one more time as we bring our time to an end today. Tell me what I'll suffer in the shame of world and sin. This world of shame and sin. He said your body may be killed and left in rots and stink. Do you want to follow me? I said amen, I think. I think amen, amen, I think. I think I say amen. 
I'm not in completely sure, Lord. Could we run through that again? You said my body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Well, it sounds terrific, Lord. I say amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you. I mean, I would rather end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, you could have put up with sneers, scorn and spit. Do you want to follow me? I said amen, a bit, a bit amen, amen a bit, a bit I say amen. I'm not entirely sure, Lord. Could we run through that again? You said I might put up with sneers, scorn and spit. Well, yes, I've made my mind up. I'll say amen a bit. I sat back and thought for a while, then tried a different ploy. I said, Lord, the good book says that Christians live by joy. He said, yes, you need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Do you want to follow me? I said, amen, tomorrow, Lord. That's when I'll say amen. I need to get it clear. Can we run through that again? You said, I need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Well, yes, I've got it straight. I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. The cost is you, not half of you, but every bit of you. Do you want to follow me? I said, amen. I quit. I'm very sorry, Lord, but I don't think religion is the courageous thing to do. Then he said, so are you courageous enough to see the need and courageous enough to go? Are you courageous enough to care for no one, for those who no one wants to know? Are you courageous enough to say the things that people hate to hear? To battle through Gethsemane in loneliness and fear. And listen, are you courageous enough at the end to stand it at the moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend? Are you courageous enough to hold your tongue and courageous enough to cry? Are you courageous enough when the nails break your body? Are you courageous enough to die? Courageous enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown. Courageous enough to love the world, to turn it upside down. I ask you, are you courageous enough to follow me? I ask you yet again, oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said amen. Amen, 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 and amen. Stand with me as we close our service this morning. Father, we want to thank you for the OG, the original gospel. And that original gospel is a gospel that you sought to find us, Lord Father God. It's an original gospel where we don't take any credit for our saving, but all honor and belonging belongs to you. And so, Father, this morning, we thank you that you remind us of the work and the writings of Paul around the work that you've done on the cross. And so this morning, I want to give an opportunity to anybody that is sitting in this auditorium that has never in their lives had an opportunity to engage with the original gospel that says you do not need to perform in front of men, but that this gospel is inviting you in to be who you are. If you sit in here, and as you heard about this gospel, you say, I want this gospel. I want this thing where Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I can walk in victory, so that the evil one, the words that have been spoken of in my life no longer have victory. Is there anybody else, is there anybody in this room that says, yes, that's me? Is there anybody here that says, that's me? I, I haven't accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I haven't walked in that freedom. You need to raise your hand, sorry. If that's you, don't you want to raise your hand? So that's me. Okay. Father, we want to thank you that we've come and spend time with you this morning talking about the original gospel. What an incredible opportunity we have to be your children in your kingdom and to sit 
walk under that grace in the name of Jesus.